does feel a little weird not having that. We were supposed to have the Zoom. Um, it just wouldn't work this morning. I, I couldn't get, so I feel terrible for those that were going to meet us online, but the internet wasn't working. But this is the last uh, Sunday for that. So if you do know anyone that was trying to get online, just, just let them know. It, it, uh, we're sorry that we weren't able to do that. Well, let me ask you to join me, in, uh, beloved, in a word of prayer to ask for God's blessing as we look at Acts chapter 20. Father, it is truly a, a, a blessing as we're able to sing your praises this morning, to do so freely and uninhibited. If there's any kind of inhibition of singing your praise, Father, we know uh, that that is not at this point... Um, a prevention from any forces outside of us, but very often, Father, it is um, an issue of our own heart uh, where we are maybe clinging onto our own uh, sin or rebellion in some way, and, and we ask, Father, that you would just remove that from us this morning, uh, that we would lay our hearts and our minds and our lives bare before you this morning, that we would come before your word looking to be transformed and changed by it, uh, that we would come looking to be conformed more and more to the image of your Son and our beloved Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. That we would be desiring to honor you in everything that we do and say and think and, and in how we live. And we know that you have given us your word to that end, that we might be transformed by it, that we might take the word that was breathed out by you and is profitable for correction and for training and for reproof that we might submit ourselves under it and that we might be blessed by it. So help us, Father, this morning to do that as we study it. I ask, Father, for your grace upon me as, as I seek to understand your word and convey it to your people. I, I trust, Father, that you will do your work in them and in me uh, through your word. And so I ask that you would protect them from anything that is false or is erroneous, Father, uh, that you would keep me from speaking anything that is untrue, and that you would uh, enable me by your spirit to convey your love for them. So I ask, Father, for your blessing on us. I ask, Father, for your blessing on those who couldn't be here this morning, on Ken and Margaret and Gary and Ann as they travel. Uh, we ask, Father, that you would be with them and strengthen them. Lord, now we turn to your word, and we thank you for it. In Jesus' name, amen. So as I said, Acts chapter 20. Uh, before we, uh, we read verses 17 uh, through 38, uh, just give you a bit of a, kind of my thoughts as I approach this passage. So you'll know that the church... Um, throughout its history has known many faithful leaders and they've been used mightily by God to advance the gospel um, and we know that church leaders in the history of the church are not, are not perfect uh, but yet we can look through the history of the church and you can see that um, there's, there's many individuals that left an indelible mark on the church and you could say that they provided for the church examples that were worth following. 
can also look at the history of the church and see that there have been many uh, so-called leaders and self-proclaimed experts and pastors who have done much harm to the cause of Christ, and they've caused many to make shipwreck of their faith as their example was followed. Um, That is true of the church, too. Um, In fact, Paul writes to to Timothy in, in 1 Timothy chapter 1. He says, verse 6, he says, Certain persons, by swerving from these, that is, these truths, have wandered away into vain discussion, desiring to be teachers of the law without understanding either what they are saying or the things about which they make confident assertions. And he will list a couple of those individuals at the end of that chapter in verse 19 or 18. He says, This charge I entrust to you, Timothy, my child, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you, that by them you may wage the good warfare, holding the faith in a good conscience, By rejecting this, some have made shipwreck of their faith, among whom are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan, that they may learn not to blaspheme. There are those examples, beloved, of a shipwrecked faith. Among those examples you see in the scripture are also Judas, who walked with the Lord for three years, and yet, even in proclaiming the gospel and speaking the truth, at the end, Judas rejected Christ as Savior for 30 pieces of silver, and he too made shipwreck of his faith. You also can see Demas in the New Testament as well. Now, we know, we know that the ultimate example of faithfulness and leadership for the church is, of course, the Lord Jesus Christ. There there is no one even in comparison. When we look to someone, as um, was prayed this morning, when we look to someone as Christians, we look ultimately to Christ, the great shepherd of the sheep. Everyone else is an under-shepherd. Everyone else is under Christ, and we all look to him. He is the head of the church. He is the gospel we proclaim. He is the one who leads us in triumphal victory over sin and death. He is the one who leads us in love and grace and obedience and humility And he even leads us, it says in Hebrews, in praise. He leads the congregation of the brothers in praise. And Jesus is the one who leads us through suffering into his glory and his eternal joy. And so what it means to be a Christian and a disciple is ultimately to be one who follows and listens to Jesus without reservation and without hesitation. When we come before Christ and we come before his word and we look for an example to follow, 
we look to Christ. Is that amen? Amen, right? That's what we do. That's a disciple. Jesus says, follow me. So without Jesus, there is no church being led into glory, right? Without Jesus, there is no church. There are no people of God. There are no saints. There is no one worth following in this life. All we have, if we don't have Christ, all we have are sinners following each other and awaiting a final day of God's judgment. Without Christ, that's all there is. Sinner after sinner after sinner after sinner after sinner after sinner, and none of them are worth looking to for any kind of example. So we know that as Christians. But the scriptures do give us, God does give us in his word, examples of what following Christ looks like. He does give us examples that stand out to us as God's people, as examples that are, are, are put before us in such a way that we might know the difference between Judas and Hymenaeus and Alexander and Demas, and between those who faithfully followed Christ like Matthew and James and John and Peter. And he gives us those examples so that we might learn from them. And I say this again, and I've, I've already uh, you know, alluded to this in previous messages, but among the good examples that God has given to us, I have to say the Apostle Paul is really becoming to me a very special and unique example as it relates to specifically not just the Christian life, but the ministry in the church. He is uniquely put before us as an example, and forgive this kind of cork crass, I guess, example, but I'm a was a very big hockey fan before all of this nonsense started and social justice and sports, I've totally, and some of you know this, I've, I've totally said I'm done with sports. I don't watch them anymore. I'm not saying you have to do that, but that's just my conviction. But I was a big hockey fan, and when I thought about the Apostle Paul as it relates to ministry, I don't, I don't know why, maybe because my wife's Canadian, but Wayne Gretzky came into my mind. And I said, what Wayne Gretzky is to hockey the, the Apostle Paul is to the ministry. If you know about anything about hockey, I mean, he owns, like, Wayne Gretzky, almost every single statistic in the sport. Like, he's way far above anyone, right? There's, like, no one compared. And, and, and I just get a sense that the Apostle Paul, I, my sense is that that's how Luke saw him, and, and my sense is that Luke wants us to understand that this is a pillar in the church that God has given to us. Luke witnessed it firsthand. Luke 
ministered with Paul. He, he saw Paul's life. He, he observed the way that he lived. And I think that Luke is so amazed by the Apostle Paul that I think as he's writing this book of Acts, as he comes to Acts 20, Luke begins to really put Paul's example before us. He's, he's made reference to it before. He's alluded to it. But, but in a unique way in Acts 20, he's really giving us a very a, a deeper glimpse And so we started to look at that last week in verses 1 to 16. You remember, he emphasized three times he used the word encouraging in 12 verses. And he emphasized that that's what Paul was about in his ministry. He wasn't a motivational speaker. He wasn't a corporate leader. Paul was one who constantly pointed the people to God and to his word to the Lord Jesus Christ. That that's was his encouragement was centered on Christ and grounded in his word. And so here, as we're going to read in Acts 17 to 38, he goes deeper here. He actually goes and he presents to us a farewell address that Paul gave to the Ephesian elders. And, and this is really the most intimate glimpse into his heart in Acts It's kind of reminiscent of the letters that he wrote to the churches in a lot of ways. But he goes deeper, and and here's why I think Luke is doing this intentionally. Because if you're looking at the book of Acts and what it's about, if you look at verse, um, verse 16, for example, and 17, Luke could have just said in in verse 16. Because he's, remember, he's, he's just explaining how Paul's on his way to Jerusalem from 19 verse 21. He could have said, for Paul had decided to sail past Ephesus so that he might not have to spend time in Asia, for he was hastening to be at Jerusalem, if possible, on the day of Pentecost. And, and he could have just said, now from Miletus, Paul sent to Ephesus and called the elders of the church to come to him so that he could encourage them. And when, verse chapter 21, and when he had parted from them and set sail, we came by a straight course to cause. You see, he, he, he could have just, with the first beginning of his theme in, in chapter 20, the theme of Paul's encouragement, he could have just said, and he also encouraged the Ephesian elders And after he encouraged them, he set sail and started telling us now how Paul gets to Rome. It's kind of his narrative, but obviously he doesn't do that. He doesn't do that. He he actually records this conversation between Paul and these elders, these overseers of the church from Ephesus. And this is... This is not as though Paul was aware that Luke was going to record this. So in other words, this is not some kind of rehearsed or prepackaged speech that Paul prepared because he was going to have a conference with elders. This is not a pastoral conference like we know today where we get our most well-known leaders and, and people in the church to come and get a bunch of pastors together to encourage them and Everyone brings their A game and their studies, and, and these are good conferences, and they're helpful. But this isn't, this isn't like that. This is actually a, an, an extremely intimate glimpse into 
what Paul thought about the ministry when no one else was there watching except for the elders. That's the kind of glimpse this is. Uh, This is... This is a genuine private conversation between close friends. And as far as Paul was concerned, this was the last time that he would ever see them. This is, I think, as real as it gets. If you're going to see a man's heart or a woman's heart, you're going to see it in private in the last days of their lives, don't you think? That's where it gets really real. And we're going to see it here as he, in only verses 17 to 25 this morning, we're going to look at how Paul viewed his own ministry and his attitude toward that ministry. And as we go through this section, here's my prayer. As I thought about myself and I thought about you, because this is extremely helpful for me as a pastor. It's extremely helpful for me to, to, to see what, a, what an example Paul was. But as you go through, here, I, I prayed for you and, and I prayed for this challenge for you. That you would consider what your private farewell address might look like to those that you love and serve. So if you thought you were going to die today or very soon in the future, and you had a final word to share with your family or friends, what would you highlight? What would your attitude be about the life that you lived? What would your final exhortation to them be? You know, we're not the Apostle Paul and we don't have his experience. But that challenge, I think, comes out to us this morning in this passage for each of us to examine those questions and and to see that if, if we are thinking about life and where God has us in the way that Paul did, as an example. So that's the challenge I put before you as we we read this. So let's read the whole passage. And we're going to, again, look at Paul's own attitude in the ministry. And there's really going to be... three parts to this, okay? So you can, if you're going to take notes, you can give these three headings. We're going to see Paul's attitude toward serving the Lord in 17 to 19. His attitude toward serving the Lord. Then we're going to see his attitude toward the ministry of the Word in 20 to 21. And finally, we're going to see his attitude toward the future in 22 to 27. So attitude toward service, attitude toward the word, ministry of the word, and attitude toward the future. So let's hear, let's hear God's word, Paul's address. Verse 17. 
Now from Miletus, he sent to Ephesus and called the elders of the church to come to him. And when they came to him, he said to them, You yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time from the first day that I set foot in Asia, serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials that happened to me through the plots of the Jews, how I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you in public and from house to house, testifying both to Jews and to Greeks of repentance toward God and of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. And now, behold, I am going to Jerusalem, constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. But I do not count my life of any value, nor as precious to myself, if only I may finish my course and the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. And now, behold, I know that none of you among whom I have gone about proclaiming the kingdom will see my face again. Therefore, I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all, for I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will raise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be alert, remembering that for three years I did not cease night or day to admonish everyone with tears. And now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and to give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. I coveted no one's silver or gold or apparel. You yourselves know that these hands ministered to my necessities and to those who were with me. In all things, I have shown you that by working hard in this way, we must help the weak and remember the words of the Lord Jesus, how he himself said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. And when he had said these things, he knelt down and prayed with them all. And there was much weeping on the part of all, and they embraced Paul and kissed him, being sorrowful most of all because of the word he had spoken, that they would not see his face again. And they accompanied him to the ship. That is Paul's word to that church. That is Paul's word in a very real sense, beloved, to us to learn from him. So Luke says that after landing in Miletus, Paul sent to Ephesus and called the elders of the church to come to him. And when they came to him, he said, you yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time from the first day that I set foot in Asia 
serving the Lord. So Paul begins, and he's reflecting on his ministry in Ephesus, and he draws their attention, like I said, to the manner in which he approached ministry. He's not focusing on the content of it right now. He's just focusing on the manner in which he says they, they not should know, but he says they know. It's something they witnessed in Paul, this manner of ministry from the first day that he set foot in Asia. These men were not simply observers from, of Paul from a distance. There was a closeness in their relationship, and so as leaders in the church, they had worked closely together for three years with Paul. So close that Paul says he lived among them. He got his hands and his clothes dirty, so to speak, with them. He wasn't just some figurehead. He wasn't just some name brand. He was among the people. He lived with them. He, he lived among them. He, he, he served them. He knew them, and they knew him, and they watched him. And they saw his life, and they could evaluate it in a very personal way. And so Paul says, as you watched me live from the first day that I set foot in Asia and lived among you, he says, you know the manner in which I served the Lord. And I thought about this, and I, I, I thought, you know, you, you can kind of look at this, and you realize that in our very scattered and private cultural existence in the United States where everyone is kind of lives, lives apart and lives separate, they have their own homes and they have their own places they go to and they have their own computers, everyone has their own private screen, it's very individualized, it's very personalized and there's a sense in which we're, we're in some ways very detached from each other. And even when we want to follow ministries or follow people or learn from them, we do it from a distance, right? We do it from a podcast, which I, I love podcasts. We do it from a, from, a, from a website where we download sermons like Sermon Audio. And, and we do it from, from even from books, from, from something distant from us. And in some ways, that's very, that's very safe because if, if we're distant from them, then there are things that we can hide. There are things we can keep to ourselves. There are things that people don't see in our homes, and so we feel, we feel safe. But when you're living among someone and there's a closeness like this, they, they knew that Paul, he says, they knew that he was not putting on a, some kind of show. And he says, you, you know this that I have, I have nothing to hide. And when I served the Lord, he says, you know that I served the Lord and you, is implied in that, with all humility and with tears and with trials that happened to me through the plots of the Jews. So here's, here's how Paul thinks about his ministry. And when I say ministry, just understand that 
this applies to you. Because in, in, in the, you may not be a minister of the gospel, but in a very real way, everyone you know and come into contact with is your opportunity to minister to them about Christ, right? So this is, this is how you should think about where God has you. And so here's the first thing he notes. He, he says, you know how I served with humility. That is not something that you can actually fake for a long time. You can put on fake humility for a period of time, but the reality is that eventually the ugliness of pride, it will rear its ugly head. And it especially happens if you have some kind of authority that is challenged and you love that authority more than the people that are under your care, you will ex that fake humility that you have will vanish in an instant. That's what Paul had. Paul had an authority. And, and the reason that that happens is because when we have any kind of authority in life, as Paul did here, our tendency is to use that authority to do what? To serve ourselves. That's our tendency. Our tendency is to take an authority that has been given to us in whatever context, and we serve ourselves. And when things don't go our way, that humility vanishes, if there wa which is a fake humility, will disappear quickly. So you can't fake humility for long because it sees here's why because humility ultimately in a biblical sense true humility sees one's self not as a person to be served but as a servant who said that jesus said that not as a ruler but as a slave of others Genuine humility, you could say, has a right perspective on one's self before God and toward others. Another way to say it is genuine humility has the right order of the first two, the greatest commandments in place. It keeps the order right. First, Humility loves the Lord, their God, your God, with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And then someone who is marked by humility will love their neighbor as themselves. And that just doesn't come naturally. Do you remember as the disciples were arguing? Can you believe this? They're with the Lord how many years? And they're arguing which one of us is going to be the greatest. And Luke records how in chapter 22 how the Lord heard them arguing and in verse 25 he admonishes them and he says the kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them and those in authority over them are called benefactors but not so with you rather let the greatest among you become as the youngest and the leader as one who serves for who is the greater and who reclines at table or for who is the greater 
one who reclines at table or one who serves? It is not the one who reclines at table in our world. But, Jesus says, I am among you as one who serves. And so Paul reminds them, not not because he wants to elevate himself, but he wants to remind them how he served the Lord by serving them, and they were able to witness it, something that can't be faked. Now, next he says that he served the Lord with tears. What does that mean? It doesn't mean that Paul was an emotional wreck who constantly broke down and sobbed before them. I don't know if you've ever met someone like that. They just can't, and they just always, they always want to cry, and they're always crying, and I don't know that that's necessarily very helpful, but that's not what he's saying. He did cry at times, and he did admonish them with tears if needed. Verse 31 says that. The point is that Paul rejoiced with those who rejoiced, you could say. He mourned with those who mourned. He identified with them in their suffering and in their trials and in their Christian life to the sense that he was burdened for them. That's, that's what is meant by tears there. Just in, in the same way that when Christ went and rode into Jerusalem, what does it say? It says he wept over them. He was burdened for them. He, he cared deeply about their souls, and he cared genuinely about them. And that can't be faked for long either, because eventually, when that, those drawn-up, maybe fake tears or fake caring for the flock, if, if it's fake, a hired hand, when trials come, they're going to flee. And they're going to flee when the wolves attack, and they're going to flee because their tears were ultimately for themselves, and they weren't ever for the flock. They had no burden for the church, and like water in Death Valley on a summer day, their tears, they're gone. That's what happens. And, And Paul says, no, I cared for you. Finally, he notes how he also suffered his own trials in his service to the Lord. He endured what he endured, not because of serving himself, but because he belonged to the Lord and his desire was to serve the Lord by serving them, even if it meant opposition to what he was doing. The Apostle Paul only cared about fulfilling the mission that God had given him, and he was willing to suffer for it and to keep going. He wasn't about advancing his career or making connections in life. It wasn't about personal gain. He suffered for them, and he says, you know this. For three years, you know I served with humility, with tears, with trials. This can't be faked. So, when we serve the Lord, is that even remotely in our thoughts? 
Do we even remotely think about a burden for people? Do we even remotely think about humility and serving others or even suffering for Christ? These are, these are questions we need to reflect on. I know I have and am still doing it, and it's, it's challenging. But Paul also draws their attention to his attitude toward the ministry of the word. And there's also three things here in this section. The first thing Paul notes is how he says, I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable. Now, when you hear that word, because he says it here and in verse 27, when you translate or hear that word, you might think he's saying, which was true of him, that he wasn't afraid. Is that right? I didn't shrink back. Sometimes shrinking back from something can be in fear. Well, he, he, he could be saying, I didn't shrink back in fear from declaring to you anything. But that, I don't think the context is telling us that. I think what he's saying is, he's saying, I didn't shrink back in the sense of holding anything back from you when it came to presenting anything that was profitable to you. I think these elders, as he's exhorting them later to protect the flock, I think some of them may have faced the temptation, in other words, to water down the gospel message a little bit. To, to, to not go so deep into the scriptures for fear of offending people or for, um, or for uh, really wanting to, to, to reach them. And, and Paul says, it's not about not being afraid, but he's saying to them, I didn't withhold anything from you. I faithfully exposed you to and taught you the whole counsel of God, no matter what it was. See, in our minds, we sometimes think of the word profitable, and we think in terms of anything that makes me happy is what? Profitable. And anything that, that hurts may be helpful or whatever or okay, but it's not, can't be profitable. But Paul, when he hears and he thinks about the word, he, he understands that the word is given and whether it's correction or reproof or teaching or training in righteousness, all of those things hurt sometimes, right? Correction hurts. Reproof hurts. Training hurts. But he says all of these things from God's word are profitable. And so he says, I didn't hold anything back from you, anything that was profitable and all of God's word is, he says, I declared it to you without reservation. And that's what Paul wants us to do. And that's what Paul wants pastors specifically to do. He wants you to be faithful to not hold back God's word. Let it have its way. Feel free to speak the truth in love. It will bear fruit. It will be profitable. And so that's what Paul says. Now, 
I want you to, here's what came to my mind as I was reading this passage. Um, if you want to look at Jeremiah 23, you can turn there if you want. But I, I don't know, I, I just, to me this was, this was a good reminder about that not shrinking back. And it's a good reminder by contrast. Now, we set a contrast out in the beginning here of the, the, the whole message, but this is, a, this is also a contrast between uh, the, the good and true prophet of God, uh, the watchman, you know, so to speak, and the false prophets. And so here in Isaiah, in Jeremiah 23, God is rebuking these shepherds of Israel, these spiritual leaders, and they were supposed to care for Israel. They were supposed to lead them in righteousness. But as it turned out, they led them into God's judgment, which was coming upon them ultimately at the hands of Babylon. And the reason they, God rebukes them here is because they would not speak God's words. The people are marked by sin and rebellion, and rather than calling them to listen to the word of God, the whole word of God, to warn them as God called them to do, these false prophets, Jeremiah is going to tell us, spoke lies to them. In other words, they shrank back from declaring the whole counsel of God. Now, I'm going to read verses 16 to 17, verse 22, and then 28 to 32. Here's how the Lord puts it. He says, thus says the Lord of hosts. He's saying this to his people. Do not listen to the words of the prophets who prophesy to you, filling you with vain hopes. They speak visions of their own minds, not from the mouth of the Lord. They say continually to those who despise the word of the Lord, it shall be well with you. And to everyone who stubbornly follows his own heart, they say, no disaster shall come upon you. Verse 22. If they had stood in my counsel, then they would have proclaimed my words to my people. And they would have turned them from their evil way and from the evil of their deeds. Verse 28. Let him who has my word speak my word faithfully. What has straw in common with wheat, declares the Lord? Is not my word like fire, declares the Lord, and like a hammer that breaks the rock in pieces? Therefore, behold, I am against the prophets, declares the Lord, who steal my words from one another. Behold, I am against the prophets, declares the Lord, who use their tongues and declare, declares the Lord. Behold, I am against those who prophesy lying dreams, declares the Lord, and who tell them and lead my people astray by their lies and their recklessness when I did not send them or charge them. So they do not profit this people at all, 
declares the Lord. There is no profit in withholding God's word. And the faithful servant, as Paul is, the faithful watchman, is to proclaim faithfully the entire word of God. This is why when you hear of churches not talking about what is clearly sin in God's word, when there are pastors who refuse to call believers to repentance, professing believers, for things that are clearly in violation of God's word, it's a shame. It's a shame. Don't withhold the truth. Don't withhold the truth from those who you speak to. Now, I think what is in Paul's mind here is not necessarily Jeremiah 23, but I do think that Ezekiel 33 to 34 is in his mind. I know he knows Jeremiah 23, but I think Ezekiel 33 to 34, the watchman passage, is something that is in his mind. And I, and I say that because he previously mentioned it in Acts 18.6, and even here in Acts 20.26, 20, he, he references it again when he says to them, I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all, for I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. In any case... Paul goes on to tell them that he was devoted to this task. So he declared the whole council and he was devoted to this task. And so you know, he notes how he taught them God's word in public and from house to house. In other words, he's not like the false shepherds who scattered the flock of God and left them as they scattered, but he went after them to care for them in public and in private. And the third thing Paul notes is that he was indiscriminate in his approach. Indiscriminate in his approach. And I, I found it really interesting how this related to Ezekiel 34. So now go to Ezekiel 34. Ezekiel 34, like I said, this is probably in his mind. So, so Paul's ministry is declaring the word of God, the whole council, not shrinking back. It's devoted house to house. And, and like I said here, it's indiscriminate. So in Ezekiel 34, verses 11 to 16, the Lord is telling Ezekiel, who is Israel's watchman, he, he's, again, warning Ezekiel to be faithful, telling him about the unfaithful watchmen, the false shepherds. And then he kind of concludes this section, or starts to, in verse 11, by telling him, by telling Ezekiel this, verse 11. For thus says the Lord God, Behold, I myself will search for my sheep and will seek them out. As a shepherd seeks out his flock when he is among his sheep that have been scattered, 
so I will seek out my sheep, and I will rescue them, note this, from all places where they have been scattered on a day of clouds and thick darkness. And I will bring them out from the peoples and gather them from the countries, and I will bring them into their own land. And I will feed them on the mountains of Israel, by the ravines, and in all the inhabited places of the country. I will feed them with good pasture, and on the mountain heights of Israel shall be their grazing land. There they shall lie down in good grazing land, and on rich pasture they shall feed on the mountains of Israel. I myself will be the shepherd of my sheep. I myself will make them lie down, declares the Lord. I will seek the lost, and I will bring back the strayed, and I will bind up the injured, and I will strengthen the weak, and the fat and the strong I will destroy, and I will feed them in justice. Jesus says in John 10, verse 11, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd who does not own the sheep sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees. And the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he has a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me. Just as the Father knows me and I know the Father and I lay down my life for the sheep and I have other sheep that are not of this fold, I must bring them also, Gentiles, and they will listen to my voice so there will be one flock and one shepherd. Here's the point. Paul as a servant of the Lord, saw it as his responsibility to go out and to call all God's sheep who were scattered about the face of the earth to be a faithful watchman that they might hear the voice of God calling unto them that the lost sheep of Israel might be gathered unto their God that they might hear, repent, and come in faith to the Lord Jesus Christ. And so Paul reminds these elders that in his ministry of the word, he was a faithful watchman. He was doing what God called him to do, and he did it indiscriminately, and he puts it like this, testifying both to Jews and to Greeks of what? Of repentance toward God and of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. He testified indiscriminately to all as the faithful watchman, that Jesus Christ is the good shepherd of the sheep, and Jesus Christ is the Savior given by God to men. Jew, Gentile, slave, free, man, woman, across the board. And so Paul was indiscriminate. He didn't withhold it. And finally, he goes on to talk about his attitude toward the future, and this is where it really hit home for me. You see, Paul had faithfully carried out his duty among them, serving the Lord by serving them, 
he faithfully ministered the word of God to them. How did he view the future? Was Paul done? Was his zeal only for a brief season? Was he ready to move on? No. All this, I think, transition, in this transition is marked by the phrase, you'll notice in verse 22, he says, and now behold, and then in verse 25, and now behold, he, he, he's thinking about the future now. And in verse 22, he says, and now behold, I am going to Jerusalem constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. And then verse 25, and now behold, I know that none of you among whom I have gone about proclaiming the kingdom will see my face again. And so as Paul looks to follow the Spirit in obedience, he knows that the Spirit has testified to the future of his sufferings. He knows that in every city, imprisonment and afflictions await him. He knows that he's going to be separated from those that he loved and served. And he admits he doesn't know what else will happen to him, but he goes on faithfully serving. Why? Because he says in verse 24, I do not account my life of any value, nor as precious to myself. If only I may finish my course and the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. For Paul, it's not only a testifying to God's grace by word, but also testifying to God's grace by God's carrying him through his suffering. Paul understood his entire life, whether suffering or joy, plenty or want, imprisoned or free, was a matter of God's grace, and that his life belonged now to God and in the future to God. He wasn't concerned about getting his best life now. He was only concerned that he would finish what God had laid before him. Okay. How are we feeling about the future God has for us? Whether young or old, aged, middle-aged, do you find that your life is still super valuable and precious to yourself? That you are unwilling to suffer for Christ if that's what he calls us to do? Are we still so preoccupied with this world that the only future which concerns us is the future of the next presidential election? Our next vacation, which I'm going on one, Lord willing, at the end of the month. Our next home, our next deposit of, in our bank account, you thinking about your next sinful act? Ooh, that's a deep one. You thought about that? You daydreaming about some sinful thing you're going to engage in? How do we think about the future? Or do we see our time here in this world 
and our future as being so tethered to the world that we, we can't bother to think about Christ. No, that's not how Paul saw his life. If we are looking to the future, beloved, I pray that it is with an attitude of fulfilling our mission here. I would like to be able to say with Paul, and I think you would too, on your last days on earth, I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all, for I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. I would like to be able to say, I'd like to be able to say that. That's an example of worth following that Paul is put before us by God. So as we serve the Lord, may we do so with an attitude of humility, a burden for the church, and a willingness to suffer for Christ. As we minister with the word of God to others, may we do so faithfully, declaring the whole counsel of God, being devoted to it in our homes and out of our homes. May we wield it indiscriminately on the highways and the byways, to the great and the small, to any who will hear about Jesus and his gospel of God's grace. No one is unreachable. And if you're here this morning, if you are here this morning and you have not yet come to Christ for salvation, you are not far from it this morning. No matter what your life has looked like up until this point, God's grace is sufficient for you and is offered to you through Jesus Christ. Right now, you are experiencing the common grace of God. Right now, you are experiencing his kindness and his love as he keeps you from that day which is coming when his common grace will be removed. And the only thing that will be left is not his loving kindness toward you any longer, which is meant to lead you to repentance, but that common grace will be removed and all you will be left with is enduring his justice and his eternal wrath. On that day, there will be no offer of salvation given. There will be no grace of God for you. There will be no opportunity for repentance, but only, as Hebrews 10.27 says, a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries of God. Sephaniah 1.18 says, Neither their silver nor their gold shall be able to deliver them on the day of the wrath of the Lord. In the fire of his jealousy, all the earth shall be consumed for a full and sudden end will make all the inhabitants of the earth. Zephaniah 3.8, Therefore wait for me, declares the Lord, for the day when I rise up to seize the prey. For my decision is to gather nations, to assemble kingdoms, to pour out upon them my indignation, all my burning anger, for in the fire of my jealousy all the earth shall be consumed. 
The Lord Jesus will be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might when he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints and to be marveled at. My friend, that's what awaits you if you do not repent and turn to Christ and he invites you today to come to him, to receive the forgiveness of your sins, to be delivered from the judgment of God. Jesus says, come to me, all who are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. If you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For us, beloved, and with this, we who have come to trust Christ as Lord and Savior have not only received his common grace, but we have received his saving grace. And we are invited even now to come before him and to sit at his table and to think rightly about what? The future. We are to think about the future remembering that we were bought with the precious blood of the Lord Jesus Christ and we belong to him. This is why as we come to the Lord's table now, I will remind you again as I do every Lord's sun table Sunday, communion Sunday, that this is reserved for those who have placed their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ alone. And it does not, it is not to be partaken of those who do not trust Jesus Christ as their Savior. It is not to be partaken by those who have not been delivered from the judgment of God. It is not to be taken by those who are living in flagrant violation and sin against God's word. It is not to be taken by those who would make it seem as if it is not valuable. If you have not come to Christ and been forgiven of your sins, and if you are harboring rebellion against God and his word, do not partake of the Lord's table. Do not take it. Because if you take it, the word of God says that you are heaping up condemnation on yourself. We, beloved, it doesn't mean that you must be perfect in yourself to take the Lord's table, but it does mean that you must know who you are before Christ and you must believe and trust him as Savior. And if you will confess your sins before him, which he invites us to do, then we can come with a clear conscience. This is why Paul writes to the church in Corinth. You treat the table of the Lord as if it means nothing. You're getting drunk 
by wine as you come to the table of the Lord. So let us think rightly about this. And let us rejoice in our future, but let us do it with humility and with thankfulness. And I invite anyone who has come to know Christ as their Savior to eat at his table. Let's pray for the elements, and then we will serve. Father, we thank you so much for um, just the example that was laid before us here by the Apostle Paul. We know that his example was not in his own strength, it was not by his own wisdom, but that you worked in him in a mighty way. And you enable us now through your word to see how you used him, to see the attitude of humility and service that he had, to see his burden for the church, for, for believers, to see, Father, the way that he suffered for the cause of Christ. And we ask that you would help us to do that. We see, Father, his desire to minister your word to the lost, to do so indiscriminately, to be devoted to proclaiming Christ and, and to be um, devoted to proclaiming your whole counsel. And Father, we ask that you would make that true of us. And Father, we know that his future was secure because you had secured it by the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so we ask, Father, that now as we come to the table to remember ultimately that all these things that we have heard and looked at in Paul's life or even reflected on in our own are all under your grace and your care. And you have given to us the ultimate gift that we could ever want, which is the shed blood of your son, the Lord Jesus Christ, and his broken body on our behalf. Father, help us to partake of this communion service and to sit at your table, not as those who feel worthy, not as those whose pride is lifted up and we feel like we deserve to partake of this, but let us do so with hearts of humility. As those who realize that you have paid the infinite price for our sins, you have given us what we haven't deserved. And Lord Jesus, we thank you for that. We thank you for your love and for your grace and your mercy and your kindness. We thank you for taking our sins upon yourself, for shedding your blood and for breaking your body. We ask now that we would sit at your table and give you the thanks and rejoice in your name for what you have done for us. Bless the bread and bless the juice as we eat it in your name, Jesus. Amen.
For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Let's eat that together. In the same way also, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Let's drink together. Amen. And Paul says, For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Beloved, let's sing together hymn 407. Hymn 407. <clears throat> 